Welcome to Alfalfa, a free-flowing, irreverent, digestible, somewhat degenerate crypto podcast for all, powered by Collective Shift. Entrepreneurs and investors Armand Asadi, Nick Urbani, Steven Cesaro, and Eric Johansson dive deep into crypto, blockchain, DeFi, NFTs, the metaverse, and Web3, all while layering in the latest in tech, money, and politics, feeding you the alpha you need to grow. Make sure to check out CollectiveShift.io for crypto insights and alerts and use code ALFALFA for 50% off your first month. A friendly but serious reminder, this is not financial advice and is for entertainment only. Do your own research. Also, please subscribe to the show and tell your DGen friends all about us. Now let us begin. What up, boys? ETH Denver tomorrow. Yeah. See you guys, yeah. See you guys in Denver for our first ever uh, crypto conference. Oh, speaking of anyone who's listening, if you'll be at ETH Denver, we'll be there. Alfalfa boys will be there. Um, maybe we'll uh, gather, gather for a drink, a beverage, a pizza. What do we, what do we want to do if we find some fumble? I was going to say, look for uh, look for the rocket hat. I'll be wearing the rocket rocket Ooh. with a crypto. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I like that. Awesome. I so yeah, we're headed crypto to punk hat on right now. Anyway, I need some. Well, why why don't we have alfalfa swag? That's really what we need. Ooh, that's a we great question. Merch. We don't have merch. the wheat. The wheat hat. We need that. Yeah. Um. So, in the spirit of ETH Denver, which we'll uh, we'll be heading to tomorrow and and through the uh, weekend. Um. You know, we had a really foundational episode, uh, episode eight, where we went into Bitcoin, right? And we kind of got really. Uh, into the fundamentals of why it matters, why it's priced the way that it is, and what this asset really is. And that's what this episode is going to be for Ethereum. And I think that this is going to be one uh, of our most foundational episodes. There's a lot to unpack. And we basically want to take you on the journey of unpacking this topic with us. And I, in particular, Armand, I'm going to play the role of the listener and the question asker, because the through line, if you will, of our conversation today is a an article that came out last year, and there's an update to that article by Squish, and Nick is going to kind of uh, give us the synopsis of that article here in a second and why it matters. That's going to be the foundational aspect of our of our conversation. I uh, could have tried to read all seventy pages last night, <laughs> but did not, and 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 actually made the conscious decision like let me actually play this role today because I think it could be really important uh, and really helpful to people to to have that as well. So um, before we dive in, we mentioned in the last episode as well, if you're interested in getting in the community aspect of things to DM us on Twitter, we got a bunch of DMs. Uh, one person reached out, said he loves us. We love you back. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. So yeah, keep the DMs coming. We're going to build up that list and um, still no uh, definitive uh answer on whether this is a telegram group or a, or a, or a discord, but Hey, the first step is just to get directly integrated with you guys. And, uh, and then we'll start working on that. And, uh, yeah, heads, uh, you know, props to Alan Bryce for also reaching out on Twitter, had some good ideas for the community. So appreciate you, uh, hitting us up and chatting up some ideas. We're definitely going to incorporate it into the community at some point. So, um, yeah, thanks everyone for reaching out. Keep doing it. Yeah. That was really good shit. Um, okay. Nick. Talapino, what is this and why does it matter? Yeah, so let's let's just do like a quick 
cover of it. And then we can, you know, anyone can choose different, different pathways, but, uh, this guy, uh, squish chaos on Twitter. Um, his name, first name is Nikhil. Um, he, in I think this was April of 2021 came out with a price target of Ethereum, an 18 month price target of 150,000, uh, which, you know, currently ETH sits at 3000. So you could think of the, the order of magnitude he's thinking and why it caught, caught some headlines. And he memed his thesis the triple halving. So most people are familiar with Bitcoin's halving every four years. The amount of new Bitcoin that comes out to miners gets issued, uh, cuts in half every four years. So he kind of used that halving idea to express that what is coming up with ETH uh, is a, the equivalent of a triple halving, and essentially is what he calls a ninety percent decrease in the supply. And there's two main catalysts for this. One is one that has already occurred. Occurred in August. EIP 1559, which uh, turned, uh, instead of ETH being issued 100% to miners, which then sell it to cover their costs for electricity and other things, uh, something like 70% of it gets burned. So the, what that means, it's equivalent of a stock buyback. When you hear Apple buying shares back uh, of their own uh, company, that's essentially the equivalent for, for ETH. So we have that EIP 1559, uh, the, the burn that happens of ETH. All ETH holders benefit from that. And then uh, the merge, which is yet to happen, maybe sometime middle of this year, hopefully that would be that would be good. And that's when um, ETH uh, turns from a proof of work uh, protocol, like just like uh, Bitcoin is with uh, Bitcoin mining using machines and electricity to a proof of stake. Um, and anyone can become a validator to participate as a, as a validator in the proof of stake network. And, um, you know, with that comes some narrative changes. Um, one of them he mentions in his summary is the kind of, uh, environment angle, uh, ETH will no longer be using electricity to support the network. So we'll have a, have a green angle. But, um, another part of it is that by being part of this validator network, part of the proof of state network, you will earn a yield. And so I think maybe this is a good place to jump off from the summary a little bit, um, and talk about here shortly, but, uh, he updated this thesis. Obviously, ETH is not on track to hit 150,000. I don't think anyone was thinking uh, seriously that it would hit 150,000 in uh, 18 months. But his thesis still remains that we will see a continued decrease in the uh, supply of ETH, specifically on exchanges. And it's a good jumping off point for why we see ETH as as money and why we see it as a good asset and why um, it could potentially be part of a future retirement plan that we might get into at some point episodes in the future. Um, but maybe uh, it would be good to focus on the the staking part um, at some point and talk about when the merge happens and, and people are, are staking their ETH now to earn a yield. I think the current yield is something like 4.8%. And so we have an asset that not only can appreciate, but can, can get a pretty good yield. And after the merge, um, you know, that, that yield may go up to something like 20, 25%. So um, maybe that's a good jumping off point, but that's a summary of, uh, you know, what his thesis was and and he was just giving an update on it. And so it's a good time, especially right before ETH Denver to kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, dive into some of our thoughts on why we love ETH. Yeah. So can I, can I jump off on a couple of things you mentioned there? Fly Fly away. Yeah. Let's just like back it way up. Right. So when you, the listener, by a coin, right? You want number to go up, right? So a lot of people maybe don't even understand like 
why prices go up, why prices go down. So at, at the base level, right? Like prices go up because there are more buyers than there are sellers. That's a pretty, you know, easy thing to grasp. Um, but what people need to understand about a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies, if they don't get this right, that, that it, and it doesn't exist in a lot of other assets. I mean, it sort of exists to a degree in stock, right? Because companies issue new stock, but it, but this is very common in crypto, right? Like most, if not all coins that I can think of off the top of my head um, are inflationary. So they're, they're constantly creating new coins sort of out of thin air and putting them into the market. Now, why do they do that? Well, a multitude of reasons, right? One reason that Nick touched on is because they need to, to like Bitcoin and Ethereum need to pay miners, right? The, the network is secured by miners and they need to have an incentive to burn their electricity and, and, and secure the network. Um, so Bitcoin currently, I think, has inflation of around like what, like 2% a year, something like that. And I think ETH used to be around like four and a half or something. ETH, ETH has a, a different monetary policy than Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin has a fixed monetary policy. It says like X number of coins are issued on this block from here to the year 2150 or wherever. Where ETH has always had this sort of like um, minimum necessary issuance policy where the inflation can kind of go up and down as the, 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 the uh, network decides is, is, is optimal, right? So ETH has always been inflationary and all your favorite shit coins, right? Your, your, your Solana, your, your, your avalanches, like all of these coins, like especially are like really inflationary um, because these, these, these coins like Solana, for example, they have very, very cheap fees. So if you're like a validator on that network, you can't like make enough money just processing transactions to make it worthwhile to sort of run your validator. Right. So the network compensates by issuing tons of coins and giving them as like staking rewards, validator rewards. Um, Solana, it's, it's good to, to know and Solana and, and, and Avalanche, these, these are proof of stake networks. And Nick, you touched on this as well. Um, so proof of work is like Bitcoin and Ethereum, where you have miners basically running calcs and burning electricity, right? Whereas proof of stake is this different sort of paradigm where validators are basically just putting coins up at risk. And if they do bad things, the network slashes their coins. And that's sort of the, mm -hmm. the incentive. So that is the model that ETH is moving to hopefully this year. That's uh, that's the merge. That's the the big event that people people talk about. Um, so when the merge happens, like all of these inflationary um, tokens that ETH is just issuing on a daily basis, you know, on a block by block basis to pay the miners, those go away. So right away, like all of these coins that are popping in, popping in out of nowhere, right? Inflating the supply, which dilutes you as a holder, those all go bye-bye. And it's a it's a huge amount. It's a huge amount of issuance that's just disappearing. So ETH, with the elimination of all these rewards for miners, plus the implementation of EIP-1559, EIP is Ethereum Improvement Proposal, um, that basically said, as Nick said um, back in the summer, that we're going to burn gas instead of giving it to miners. So when we combine those two factors together, um, and you can actually simulate this right now. If you go to uh, ultrasound.money, there's like a little switch where you can click uh, simulate merge. 
Hmm. And uh, right now, ETH is a 1.6% inflation, which is crazy because it's already lower than Bitcoin, like right now, which is nuts. Like nobody saw that coming like a couple of years ago, right? But if you click simulate merge and like we're, we just go to the merge, we're at negative two and a half percent. Okay. So, wow. so every single year, two and a half percent is going away. Deflationary. Yeah. So- so yeah, can, can I just jump in before you ask a question, yeah. Armand, if you don't mind? It, I think the, another reason this is so important is because with Bitcoin, there's this meme of there'll only be ever be 21 million. And that that is an easy thing to understand. Mm-hmm. It's the amount of supply is locked. And what we're saying right now is that ETH has a much more complex monetary policy, but essentially it will become deflationary, meaning the number of coins will decrease instead of stay flat. At one point, the amount of coins will say from 120 something million to decrease. And it's 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 tough to understand. There's much more at play. And that's why we think it's really important to explain and for everyone to understand, because I think once everyone understands it, it'll be this much more complex thing to understand, but you'll it'll have a lot more power than say the 21 million Bitcoin ever meme that and and, and you know possibly much more powerful and, and why we think you know, ETH number will go up. So anyway, I think it's just important to why it's, you know, this is going to get a little complex, but it's, it's, it's important to understand because it could be more powerful um, than how we understand Bitcoin's monetary policy to be. Sorry, Armand, go ahead. Uh, It's basically the same uh, thing that I wanted to shine a light on. Like I have the same question. Mm -hmm. It's like, so you're telling me like everybody understands, most people understand this 21 million fixed Bitcoin thing. And then the issuance that's happening, what I'm hearing, you know, Stephen, you're talking about is, 2% 2% per year. And yet, even with Ethereum on the same uh, system, the same proof of work system is actually, what did you just say? 1.4% inflation? What was that? So, so cur- currently we're at 1.6%. 1.6. So that's just wild for a non-fixed supply uh, coin, right? That like should be inflationary to be below the current level of Bitcoin inflation. And then I think the hardest part for people to like wrap their minds around and really understand, I think even myself at times still like have trouble with it, the deflationary aspect of it is really challenging because the first thing that a person would think is like, well, well, wait a second, how can there be less than what was already issued? Like, I understand that we're going to move from a proof of work system where the reward to people is to miners is more Ethereum coins, right? We're going to shift to this other system where the validators receive an award, a reward, right? For like literally staking their ETH, which we're going to unpack the staking. But why then does it mm-hmm. become deflationary? Like what it's there, there's, let's unpack can, that. Can we like more. even simplify it even more and just say like Squish said that ETH price was going to 150K. How do we get there? That's that's the real question I think we're asking. It's like, mm. why does the number go up so high? What drives it? Steven, you want to answer that? Yeah. Well, I mean, this this is step one of what drives it, right? So the first thing for people to understand is that when you have ETH and ETH becomes deflationary after the switch to proof this proof of stake, right? It means that every single day, every single year, there's less and less and less ETH. Because in order for people to use the network, in order for anybody to do anything on ETH, you have to pay gas, right? And gas is is ETH, right? But that gas now just goes bye-bye. It gets vaporized. It gets completely burned. So the more people buy NFTs, the more people use apps, the more people send ETH, the more people do anything. Every time anything happens, ETH gets burned. Awesome. And what happens to an asset that you hold as there becomes less and less and less and less and less and less of it? It gets more valuable, right? Mm -hmm. 
So that's step number one of why ETH number go up, right? Is understanding like the burn mechanism. Now let's talk about like the other factors, right? Because you alluded to this a, a moment ago, Armand, is that when we switch to proof of stake, you are going to be able to, well, you can already stake your ETH now, but it's a little confusing. Yeah. It's on a different chain. It's on like the test chain, right? The beacon chain. So the merge is it has that name because we're we're squishing the two together. We're merging them into one. Um, so on on ETH mainnet, you will now be able to stake your ETH, right? Either by having like the minimum of thirty two and like kind of running your own validator, or by going into a pool like something like a Rocket Pool or Lido are really good options for people. Um, but like exchanges like like Coinbase and Craig, they're all going to be running. ETH staking, right? Yeah. And w- what this means to simplify it, right, is you basically, you, you stake your ETH to the network, you you lock it up temporarily, and in exchange for doing so, you get more ETH as a reward. It sounds a little too good to no, be true. So it's, it's like that's, a, uh, that's what happens. a CD account with your dollars, like what you used to do when you could actually get a return, right? You would lock yeah. up your dollars in a savings account and earn interest. But, but now let's go back to the supply and demand like we were talking about, right? Like what happens when suddenly everybody takes their ETH and locks it up to stake it so that they can get the reward? Now when some hedge fund wants to go on to an exchange like Coinbase to buy ETH, well, well now the order book has like less ETH on it and less and less and less ETH. And like progressively smaller buy orders move the price up more and more and more and more, right? So the more of an asset goes away, right? Or the more of that asset gets locked up and is not liquid supply, the, the, the more the, the, the more number goes up, the more that demand pushes the price up. And let's, let's, let's again remember that right now, every day, there is nonstop constant selling pressure from miners. Like ETH miners are constantly getting ETH and they're constantly like dumping it. So that all goes bye-bye. Plus, like we have all these people staking, right? So that's that's point number two. Um if anybody wants to jump in, feel free. Yeah, yeah, Otherwise, I, like, yeah. Well, I think like you have to understand the business model of a miner, right? They're they're running some machinery uh to to mine ETH and it costs electricity. So they're constantly having to sell ETH in order to pay for those electricity bills. And, and make their profit. So we have these nodes that are operating the network that are applying sell pressure. And the, the crazy thing about miners is that they don't even have to hold ETH. You know, you can just run a mining node and not have to hold it. And they're, they're constantly just selling it. So now, not only do we not have that sell pressure, we're actually burning roughly 70% of it. The 30% goes to the stakers, but those stakers are locking up a good amount of their ETH, a good amount of the network. Currently it's at um, 8%. Of, of total supply is is locked up. Um, and so I think it's a, yeah, it's important to note that not only is it not getting sold, but the people who are receiving it are are locking it up um, and, and not using it. So just like Steven said, um, there's less supply when, when say someone wants to make a big buy or like institutions. Um, right now, the yield on that, and, and Armand, you mentioned a CD. Um, and so I think it's important to talk about what that means in ETH terms. I think it's really powerful that if if you can assume that, you know, five, 10 years down the road, that ETH will be this um, transaction layer for the new internet, if you will, all these applications, it will be a settlement layer for Web3. And even if it only doesn't have the full market share, 100%, it still has a significant majority of the market share, you are essentially owning a bond, an internet bond on 
on that transaction layer. And right now, before the merge, it currently pays 4.8%, which is pretty pretty darn good yield. You know, it's not going to keep up with inflation right now, but at least it's a, an appreciating asset. And I think we're projected once the merge actually happens that, and this is something maybe we could debate a little bit, but that yield for staking your ETH may go up to something like 20 or 25% uh, annually uh, on your ETH. So Tem- I don't temporarily know. Temporarily likely. Right. right? But, but, but why we could see that for a, because, a little bit because and then this is where the power comes that will temper that will temporarily stay high and it'll go down but isn't that it will go down because more people will stake if there's a 25 percent yield won't more people dump in there and become a validator and so wouldn't that cause more either more buying of eth or people with eth instead of having it out on exchange and trading it or buying nfts with it be incentivized to then lock up their eth and so we have 8% of the network locked up now. We could potentially see that grow a few, uh, multiply maybe, um, because who doesn't want you know a 25% yield? So that yield will go down because of buy and demand pressure. Nick, I want to go I back found, to one thing uh, you said. I found the actual staking yields if you want to see the most recent yep. estimates. Yeah, look, Justin Drake the puts them out on, yeah, Justin Drake put them out on January 8th. He's, 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 he's estimating... Nine to twelve and twelve point six percent, like median of ten point seven percent, which is really high, right? Ten percent, seven point seven percent on a on an asset is 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 pretty nutty. Um, we could talk about the 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 way like a, a fund might tackle that in in a bit if you want. I know you wanted to jump in with something, Armand. Just the the detail there, I think, is really important because we're talking about a certain amount of ETH being staked now that has the ability to unlock and unstake. And I know this is like a, 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 a often debated point. Like, really, there's there's multiple levers there and multiple reasons why there could be more staking that happens. The higher uh, amount of ETH that you can earn, um, like the fact that you just might generally want to you know get out of NFTs and get that 20%, but there's also a lot that is currently locked up, right? So both of these, all these things are going to happen all at the same time in this merge, right? Right. So there, there's, you know, if you lock your ETH now, it, it is locked in there until the merge happens. I wish you right. can unlock it. And the protocol has issued some uh, rewards to incentivize people to lock their ETH. And that's what they're receiving now. New issuance, to incentivize that lockup period. And when the merge happens, those people who've been locking up some of them for, um, oh, I think Years. over a year, um, yeah. will have a chance to, to become liquid again. But so that that may happen, right? And that will likely happen, those portion. But there's these services that, that Stephen mentioned, Rocketpool, Lido, they are pooling a bunch of ETH together and they're actually uh, giving a token in exchange for locking up your ETH in their community pool. They're giving you uh, like Lido gives you ST ETH, staked ETH, and that is is liquid. And so you essentially, these services have been giving people the ability to move in and out of those staking pools. So I don't know what percentage, percentage of, of, of the, the current staked ETH. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. That is actually, you know, I guess practically and functionally liquid because you can kind of move in and out of these, uh, these pools and, and, and sell your stake ETH. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be this massive unlocking and sell pressure, but there will certainly be some, and, those and it just won't continue. be as big because yeah, yeah but the, it won't be the as big because the services are providing people liquidity. The assumption is more people will be staking after the merge than before. Like, 
It's a I mean, listen, we, we see it in DeFi now, but we see it in any asset class when there are yields like, like, let's say it is 10%, the money goes there. I mean, yep. like Stephen has mentioned, and we've mentioned different layer ones like Phantom or, you know, um, AVAX, you know, a lot of times why they have so much uh, total value locked money on their protocols, because there are, you know, significant yields to be had in, in DeFi, you know, sometimes 20% plus, even on like Terra, for example. So m- money follows the, the yield. And I think we'll, we'll see that be the case uh, once the, the merge happens. I know I'm interested in it, you know, and um, definitely want to capture that yield and we'll see how fast the money moves in. But I think uh, traditional finance, I think this will start to make the mainstream headway when you hear of a of a crypto asset that natively gives you 10%, not you have to use some not you know DeFi. obscure DeFi protocol, but it's native to the protocol um, to get those kind of yields. I think a whole new narrative will develop and that'll be a um, you know a, definitely a bull narrative for for ETH. And I'm excited to see that pop up on CNBC and Bloomberg, you know probably a month or two after the merge, you know, once things catch on. Great point. Yeah. I, that's a good point. They definitely will be quoting that ETH yield, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, they- what's important to realize about it too, is that funds can actually capture that yield without taking on the risk of ETH, right? Because you can borrow ETH like very cheaply and you can often short ETH via like a perp and get paid to do so, right? So if you're a fund and you see 10% yield on ETH, well, you can put on a trade that looks like this. You could buy $100 million of ETH, and then you could then put on a short of $100 million of ETH using a using a perp on an exchange, right? And you could do so using leverage, so you only have to put like 10 million of capital into it, right? You now have a neutral position, right? If ETH goes up, then one of your portfolios goes up, the other goes down and vice versa, right? But you can now stake that 100 million of ETH and make a risk-free 10% on it. And you may even be getting paid like 5 or 10% on, on the short, right? In bull markets, you often can get paid like 15, 20% to be short ETH. So what that's going to mean is like a fund may be able to go in and make like 35, 40% on this trade being delta neutral, like without taking price risk. And what's that going to do? It's going to cause like a lot of money from the real meat space world, right? Where people are getting 0% real yields and bonds. And they're going to be like, wait, we can get like 25, 30% in crypto on like the second most premium asset in crypto. And then you could have like just billions of dollars really coming in to buy ETH. They have to buy ETH to put on the trade. And when they buy the ETH, well, number goes up again, right? So reason number five, why ETH number go up. (laughs) Mm. Wow. Now we hit at like, two points, correct? Yeah. And there's a third point to unpack. I mean, feel free to unpack that more um, if there's layers within that that are I mean, important. But I just think, uh, Stephen, you made me think about looks and we've been talking about the looks trade a little bit and how it has ETH rewards. I think the current rewards are like 120% annually. You earn an ETH uh, on your on your looks for, this is for looks rare, the open sea. Uh, competitor. I think it was, and I I saw, think it was 200, 250 today when I looked, when you fact oh, it, looks plus, it got back up. plus ETH. Yeah. Oh, I see. So like a lot of people, ETH. Yeah. there's precedent for what Steven's saying. So a lot of people applied that same type of trade to look. So they, 
they bought looks and then went short looks at the same time. So they had a neutral trade where their looks went up or down and then, you know, took, took the reward. So this is like, there's precedence for this in crypto and there's certainly precedence for this in traditional finance. So, um, you know, I think how does a listener take advantage of that? Um, you know, one own ETH, but I think these institutions may productize that. Yeah, own ETH, but also maybe we'll see some institutionalized productize that where you put your money in a vehicle and it is long and short ETH, but you get your yield on on top of it. So hopefully they'll they'll be something a lot yeah. more simpler that we can all use instead of having to. There are, there are already protocols that are coming out that basically just do a basis trade automatically What's that? for you. Basis trade. It's a trade similar to what I'm talking about where you. You, you, you create a neutral position, right? So imagine like there's a there's a perp contract on an exchange like FTX. A perp contract is basically like a derivative, a derivative, <laughs> right? Um, it's not like you're actually buying or selling ETH, but you have exposure to it. So you often end up in a situation where the longs have to pay the people who are short like tons of interest to get, because the, the, the trade has to be balanced. You need the same people long as short. So you sometimes end up in a position where you have to say pay like 40% APR to be long ETH via perp. And people are willing to do it because they're leveraged and they're making a lot of money. But that means somebody who takes the other side of that trade can basically get paid 40% to be short ETH. But if they don't want to be short ETH, they could simply buy an equivalent amount of ETH in the open market. And now they have a neutral position, right? And they're earning just 40% on their short position without having to take on any risk of price movement, right? So we're now having protocols coming out that are actually like kind of automating this process. You just sort of like stake tokens into the protocol and you just earn that yield. And this is one of the, there's a lot of cool stuff like this in DeFi coming out. I mean, we've seen a lot of it with with options, right? Um, like, like, like DopeX has been like a huge project on, on Arbitrum, you know, an, an ETH layer two. Um, and, and as layer twos roll out, we're going to see more and more of this. And the layer two thing is actually like another reason why we're going to start seeing more ETH demand. Like we're finally this year, I think, going to see like a real explosion in, in ETH layer twos, which are these, these, these protocols built on top of ETH that are secured by the Ethereum network, as opposed to a protocol like, uh, like a side chain, like, like AVAX, which is, is sort of like, more like adjacent to it. It's not necessarily secured by ETH. Um, so with, with layer twos, like, like Arbitrum, like Optimism, like ZK Sync, right? The, all these things are rolling out and we're having the bridges kind of built from the exchanges to them, which is like the big thing, right? Like once people can cash out to and from Arbitrum, from Coinbase, like we're going to see tons more money flow into layer twos. And this is big because there's, there's all this money on the sideline right now that is either not involved or they're using like Luna or Solana or AVAX because like they can't use ETH. It's just too expensive, right? So layer twos make gas fees like close to nothing once, once more adoption happens. Um, and all the activity for the layer twos eventually has to settle on ETH, which burns more ETH and just drives more demand for ETH and again, pushes number higher. Um, okay. I'm, I'm so kind of expecting, you know, in. mid this year, end of this year. So sure. like, these are all reasons, okay, number go up, but a lot of people sitting here on the sideline are going like, well, you know, cool story guys. Like uh, I love the bullish takes, but like, uh, 
what's going on? Like, why is the thesis not playing out? Like, why is Ethereum still $3,000? You know, like, great. It's all cool. 70 page article. You guys think this is like why we should be bullish, but uh, parts of all these reasons are half baked and some of them are fully baked. And, and, you know, like EIP 1559 already happened. It didn't do what people are saying it should have done make number go up. So, so how do you respond to that? I think the average I mean, I think retail the, investor is the, the, that. Right. I think, uh, you know, EIP, you know, 1559 has, has happened and it did what it was supposed to do, which was instead of, you know, giving all the gas fees to, to miners, it, it burned a majority of it. So it set the stage for the merge to happen. I think where the narratives kind of get missed up, and this is where Squish mentions in his update, is that, uh, you know, ETH was is is slow to to scale, is slow to implement the merge, and it allowed a hole for these alt layer ones, which have you know faster throughput speeds. They're certainly uh, lower cost to use, faster to use. I think allowed them to gain market share, and so that's what the narrative we've seen play out over the last I don't know nine months, twelve months, uh, and so that that has certainly happened. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily was unexpected. I think because the delay in the merge. Um, you know, that narrative has come about and, and played out and, and, you know, the ETH has lost market share. I think it's something important for people to understand that ETH as a protocol is actually decentralized. There are multiple client teams that have to work on ETH to, to make a, a change. And, you know, when you look at like Solana, for example, it is not a decentralized team updating code. So yes, they can move faster. They can make changes faster. But if we believe that decentralization is one of the reasons we're here in the first place, then while it will take longer for ETH to catch up, um, once the merge does happen, it'll be an order of magnitude further along um, you know, than, than these alt layer ones. And if you play it out, if these alt layer ones do you know, grow in a massive level of transaction volume, like where ETH is now, they will eventually face the same difficulties and same issues that ETH has faced for the last year. And they will have to um, you know, make a decision. Do they come like in a Ethereum virtual machine roll up or, or do they kind of implement their own layer one, layer two system to, um, you know, handle those difficulties that they will inevitably face? So um, while it seems that the alt layer ones are taking a, a lead in the in the short term race, they, they, they certainly are. I think they're actually quite uh, a leg behind in the in the long term race. Now, if you're just trading to make money. The play was right to bet on these all layer ones in a short term trade. That certainly, you know, I think that that was right and that certainly played out. But when we're talking about um, maybe a decade long play, a five to 10 year play for, you know, a potential, you know, 50x return, um, you know, the, I think the ETH thesis still remains and it's just going to take time for it to play out. And it's, I think there is some execution risk played in, like, will they actually pull it off? It's been postponed, you know, several times. So maybe there's some execution risk played off, but I also think for the same reason that the group of four of us still have to like discuss this topic amongst us to understand it is the reason that the narrative hasn't played out because it is difficult. It is complex um, to, to understand and fully appreciate the order of magnitude of, of impact it will have on the asset. Um, so I, I just think, uh, you know, people have to see it to, to believe it. And once the yields happen, once the supply decreases, then it'll become part of the narrative, not not before. Yeah, I think what you said about the hiccup with gas last year is like critical, right? Like we had 
the first part roll out in the summer with the AP 1559. And then it didn't matter because people couldn't use ETH. It was just too expensive. So we saw like the amount of ETH kind of locked in DeFi, right? You could pull up a chart of that. That flatlined. It even went down a little bit. And all that demand went elsewhere. And this is why what I'm talking about, Armand, with like the rollout of layer twos this year is so important because people are going to be able to get the same experience they get on Solano, which is to do things like very quickly and very cheaply, you know, maybe not as cheaply as Solana yet, but that will come. Um, that's going to bring all this, all these users back to ETH. That's going to bring all this demand back to ETH because demand for L2s is demand ultimately for ETH. And that is going to put upward pressure on the price. Um, I am like sort of unsure of what's going to happen in like the short run, right? Like I, I do think there's like a good argument to be made that the, if these L2s are really successful, they may sort of like offload so much demand from like the main net that like actually like we burn less ETH paradoxically, which actually is less bullish for the price in the short run. But in the long run, like if we're looking five, 10 years down the road, ultimately that speed and that like low cost of execution is going to bring tons of demand onto these layer twos. And it's going to probably be someday like impossible to use mainnet. Like using mainnet is going to be only something that like Visa or MasterCard does, right? It may cost like it may cost like $500 just to send somebody like a hundred bucks worth of ETH. It wouldn't even be uh, worth doing it. We're all just going to sort of like live on these, these layer twos, you know? Can I, can I do a fun experiment? Um, Eric, I'd yes. like to have a, I'd like to have a sidebar with you, Eric. Um, so I just listened to all that and um, I understand it. And I can pretty much tell you that I, and even though I understand it, I'm confused. <laughs> and I can tell you that 95% of people listening are confused. So I would Good, like let's the, unconfuse you. Yeah. So I would like the, the kind of like, we just heard a lot of interesting, fascinating technical reasons why number go up. I would love if you and I could just have a quick sidebar, help me make sense of all of that, not only on my own behalf, but on behalf of the listener. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, let me try to wrap it up for us, like in, in a nice little package. And, and at least this is, this is the way that like a traditional finance mind or like a CFA brain looks at the investing world. And maybe this will help you too. So I think typically we look at the world in terms of like technical analysis and fundamental analysis. Okay. Technical analysis means like you're looking at price action to determine future price action. And then fundamental analysis is, is saying that like an asset's going to trade at the value of its future cash flows. Okay. What, what we're talking about here and what Squish Chaos was actually talking about in his report saying that ETH price is going to go to 150K, he's actually looking at something completely different. He's looking at supply and demand uh, of like traders, the flow, the flow of funds. And this is, this is like a third category that I'd, I'd label under like special situation. This is actually more akin to what we saw with GameStop. So when you're trying to predict the price of GameStop, you're not actually looking at the value of the business. Uh, you're not looking at the technicals, meaning the chart. What you're actually doing is, is trying to determine like based off of how many shares are, avail are available to sell versus who's going to buy it, right? And if everybody's buying it and nobody's selling it, well, then the price is going to go higher. And how do you actually like pinpoint an actual price on that? It's hard. It's hard. So Squish put out 150K as his like supply demand balance. Um, where, where I land on it, 
you know, who knows? I, I think like where I would like to start is actually looking at the fundamentals. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about Ryan Alice, a guy named Ryan Alice going on Bankless recently. And he was talking about the discounted cash flow valuation of ETH being somewhere between, uh, I don't remember, 12 and 20K. And, you know, we've heard a lot of people quote like that, that range based on the cash flows. I think Stephen brought up a good point. It's like, how do you value the cash flows of something that's paid in, in its native currency? That's another problem. Uh, I think if you, if you just zoom out from that, you're, you would just look at the yield itself. If you can capture like a, a seven or 20% yield on something that, that has value in itself. Um, so like enough value to like make people want to buy it. So now we're talking about the supply and demand again. Um, I think it's important to note that like, we're not necessarily talking about the intrinsic value of this asset right now. We're talking about where the price could go. It's, it's almost like we're talking about the squeezeability of it. So like when we're talking about 150K that's squish quoted, um, he's talking about like, where could this thing squeeze to if enough, if enough ETH is staked, if enough ETH is locked in DeFi, if enough ETH is burned, the supply is going to be so constricted to the point where buyers are going to be fighting over the available ETH trade where it could like moon in a, in a squeeze scenario. And that's completely different than like the way a traditional finance guy would probably look at something to be like, well, what's the the inherent value or the intrinsic value of of this asset? Yeah, which that's uh, so beautiful. And and by the way, I wasn't giving you guys a hard time. I just kind of wanted to give you guys a hard time. Actually, I was giving you guys a hard time. <laughs> so Eric, when we were at Board and Brew, uh, you said something that was really similar to that. And I think it's also really important to mention, like you were talking about this idea of like investing as a whole in assets in the stock market, normal retail investor, value investor, trying to apply these different methodologies of how you analyze these assets doesn't like everyone's trying to figure this out. Can you like also integrate that into what you just said? I think uh, it's hard to like keep a a universal view on all this stuff. I think Mm -hmm. um, what, what we mentioned before it does matter. It doesn't matter if that it, it's technical analysis or fundamental or whatever. At the end of the day, we care about price. You know that that's what an investor cares about. They care that their their dollars go in and and go higher. Um, I think with ETH, what what everything that Stephen and Nick and you said earlier is going to push the price of ETH higher. And and I think a simple framework of looking at that is to say like, okay, so what's the supply and d- demand dynamic right now? And let's just like, let's hold the demand steady. Let's just assume the demand doesn't go higher. Well, supply is going down. You guys mentioned all the reasons why supply is going down. So that ceteris paribus means the price is going higher. But then I think if you even like look at demand, you could say demand is also going higher, which is going to even shoot shoot price. It's going to be even like a, a driver for price to increase even more. Uh, and, you know, I have some numbers to back that up. You know, like um, we've, we've talked about supply at length, but I could talk about the demand, you know, the demand right now, 42% of all ETH burned is based off of NFTs. NFTs is such a, like a, a nascent use case. It's like, it's like such a, it's like a brand new baby. It's like, a, it's like a little newborn. That's what we're like basing all of our ETH demand off of right now. And NFTs are mostly just profile pictures today, but like, as we evolve and like, you know, I think 26% wow. of ETH burned is off DeFi. DeFi can even expand. Like the demand for ETH is also going to rise in my opinion. 
just because you're seeing like how much demand there is just for freaking profile pictures. So like if, if you take supply down and demand up, of course, price is going to go higher. Okay. That's awesome. And for the X factor of like, this is a new technology. You know, I don't think anyone saw the NFT bull run that happened last year. There could be, you know, this new thing that we haven't thought of that, you know, will, will be another application based on Ethereum that will drive block space demand um, even higher. I think that's one thing we all agree upon that one of the biggest products of the next five years will be block space. That will be the most in-demand product of the next five years. NFTs will be a part of it. DeFi will certainly be a part of it, but there will also be new and innovative things that get developed from it that will increase uh, the block space demand, just like NFTs came out of nowhere last year. So, um, Stephen, I have a question for you. I mean, you know, I know that you just mentioned the timing aspect of this is hard and you're kind of unsure about the next six months. But, you know, if you're talking to a friend who's just a, a normal crypto retail investor, and they have a stash of cash that they want to inject. Um, and you're obviously a professional at this. How would you recommend that they time that? Like, is this something that, because I know a, a lot of people, including some people we know are currently taking like chips off the table, like they're selling ETH right now. Um, so I know it depends on a multitude of factors and it depends on the person and their risk tolerance and everything. But if they wanted to play this squish scenario out if this if all these pressures were going to come to fruition does it make sense to just get in now or kind of wait on the sidelines a little bit like how to make this practical i guess it's like a popular question that people ask all the time um generally 99.9 percent of people shouldn't be trying to time the market that being said if you have like a really long investment time horizon. I, I think there are metrics you can look at that while not really predictive for the next six months are pretty predictive, you know, on like a multi-year and certainly multi-decade time horizon, which should be people's horizon for an ath- an asset like ETH because it's it's so volatile, right? Like you can see this thing go down 60%. It's probably... I, don't know, I haven't checked the, the charts, but it's probably going down 60% twice this year, right? Already at, at one point, right? So if you're holding in the short term and that's your mindset, you can just so easily get wrecked, right? So you got to think like this is a five-year hold, like at minimum, right? And then the question becomes like, okay, so on like longer horizons, like what does price look like? And right now, you know, we've obviously rallied up a little bit and there's a lot of macro uncertainty in the world. There, there is, right. I, I don't deny any of that, but when I look at ETH on like a longer time horizon, it, it does feel fundamentally unva- undervalued to me. Like I would totally agree that it's worth at least 10 or 12 K and it's not hard mm-hmm. to like put together like reasonable models that say like the price should be 20 or 30 K. Right. And that doesn't mean the price can't go to like $800 this year. Cause it certainly can. Right. But it, it does mean that on, even if you buy it right now, when there is some risk, right, you, you are buying an asset that over a long time horizon, is just massively undervalued by the market. Right. And if you don't own any, you should probably just buy some now, maybe don't buy all of it now because it can feel good to have some cash, right? So that you can just always buy whenever it dips, buy whenever it dips, you know, and it feels, feels better, right? When you're all in and it dips, you feel helpless. It's not a great, it's not a great feeling, you know, but this is a common thing I hear in general, like ETH being undervalued, right? 
And well, it is, I, it's, 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 it's so undervalued in, in my opinion. I mean, you guys, you guys say, say that, you, yeah, you guys agree <laughs> with that as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why we, we hold it and why I cry every time I buy an NFT, even though I celebrate, you know, the hopeful eventual ROI that the NFT will, will create. I cry a little inside because I, I also know that, you know, it's costing me opportunity costs of this long-term play that, you know, I have, and I am, uh, you know, foregoing that for, you know, whatever NFT play we're, we're going with. So I cry a little inside every time I buy an NFT and then I text you guys in the thread, help, I need help. <laughs> I have an addiction, maybe. It's so, hard. Armand, ETH is the biggest part of my portfolio for all the reasons that we've been talking about thus mm-hmm. far. Uh, but I did sell some recently right. in an effort to, to trade it because I, I just see so many macro headwinds. I, I took some off the table, but it, um, it's only because I want to be able to buy more on any dip, mm-hmm. like Steven said, like have a little bit of, have some cash ready to deploy if things get bad. And, and it looks, it looks kind of like things are getting bad uh, globally, like macro. It looks like things are getting pretty bad. So I just want to be prepared for the, for like that one scenario where it gets real ugly, but I'm so long ETH. I'm, I'm so happy and comfortable just like holding my ETH long-term. Yeah, I'm really. I, mean, I just want to add that. one more caveat to what you said there too. It's that like, although everything looks bad right now, and it definitely looks bad, when it's the bottom, like nobody ever knows it's the bottom. Like it always looks like it's going to get worse when it's the bottom. Otherwise, everybody would have like front run the bottom, and it wouldn't have gone that low, right? So anytime you're buying. And it's like really, 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 really painful, right? It's really, really, really painful often because it's it's close to the bottom. Like if it feels safe to everybody and everybody knows it's the bottom, it's it's probably not the bottom, right? And that's not to say that we definitely hit the bottom because everybody was fearful. Like that doesn't mean it can't go lower, but like it's just this like it's just like this weird psychological thing when you're in markets. Like it never feels good to buy when it's at the bottom, right? So we're all sitting here saying like, oh, it feels pretty bad looking for the rest of the year. I mean, that could be true, but it also could be a sign that like maybe the worst has passed. Maybe things have been priced in. Maybe the year won't unfold in a fashion that's as bad as the market was, right? While I don't think that that's the case, I'm very open to that possibility. And a long-term investor should just not even care about that at all. Because like on long time horizons, ETH is in my opinion, like very undervalued right here. So you should buy it. And if it goes down, you, well, you should buy some more. If you can afford to lose the money, of course. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's a, we keep saying on a long-term time horizon and we've been talking about these l- big price targets. I think it's important to talk about when when we see these big price targets, like 150,000 ETH or uh, $1 million Bitcoin, um, you have to take into account. And this is this is actually good to, to think about whenever you see any coin for that matter. And look at the the price target or price that people are forecasting. You might see in Discord or Twitter, people throwing out random numbers. You have to look at the market cap. And the market cap is a better, I think, uh, marker for if this is possible. So, you know, to hit $150,000 ETH, I think we're looking at close to just under a $20 trillion market cap for ETH. And right now we're something like 300 or 400 million. So it's a 20 X leap to a billion. Oh, did I say million? 
Oh, billion. Yeah. Sorry, three hundred forty billion. Uh, so we're we'd have to give to uh, to to a twenty trillion dollar ETH market cap, just to get put things in perspective. The total crypto asset class, including Bitcoin, ETH, all the shit coins, the total uh, market cap for all of crypto is just around two trillion dollars. So, um, and for Bitcoin to hit a, a million dollar per coin, that's also you know just under a twenty trillion dollar market cap. And for those keeping score, that would that would mean a flipping if those you know hit those uh, prices or are near flipping. Um, but what that means is that the whole asset class is to go from two trillion to say fifty trillion. And what that will take is time. Narratives have to play out. Fundamentals have to be executed, um, and money has to flow in. And it won't happen immediately. It will happen over, you know, five, ten, twenty years. And the whole asset class needs to see money flow in. And uh, so, when we say long-term time horizon, uh, it's important to understand why. Just because a lot, a lot of money has to flow in over time, and we think it will. Um, we think that is almost inevitable that the whole asset market class will 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 increase um but it's going to take some some time to actually see it uh play out beautiful i I like what you did there nick and i just want to add to it like nick was saying talking about perspective like keeping a keeping a wider perspective on on the on the market cap of eth okay so at, at like 350 billion today or whatever whatever the quote is right now it's about the same as the market cap for Home Depot, the company. <laughs> so it's like important to note that like it's so early. We're talking about a network here that like could be the next iteration of the internet, all encompassing, sort of like a global computer, and it's worth the same amount as Home Depot. Yeah, I like, mean, it's like we're in the '90s right now, and we're trying to like wonder what the total market cap of the internet will be, and right. like it's really hard to fully appreciate what that turned into. I mean, we always joke around some of those old articles we, we talk about when people are forecasting the internet and they were, they were very undervalued in their prospects for the internet uh, in that time. So it is really hard to contemplate that, you know, this could be a $50 trillion mark class, but when you're talking about a global settlement layer for, you know, uh, what could be a new internet, um, the cool thing is that you actually get a chance to own a piece of that um, where in the previous iteration, we, we all didn't get a chance to, to own that. So it's, it's hard to forecast now, but, um, yeah, it's already a good trade. Owning ETH is already a good trade, like just for long-term. And now after the merge tack on a 20% yield on top of just holding it, like it could be the best trade of our lives. Like it could be the best, (laughs) the best investment of our lifetime. And, And that's what I'm sort of that's my base thesis is that's, and that's why I'm putting more than the majority Bitcoin? of my wealth there. Like and Bitcoin just, too. But if you had to choose, like, do you, when you think of the best trade of all time? I prefer ETH personally. I like, mm-hmm. I was thinking about this today actually, cause I knew we were going to talk about this, but you, the three of you guys got into crypto well before me and you got Bitcoin earlier than I did. So I don't have this same affinity to like the king of a jungle, like the Bitcoin. To me, like when I got in, it was like, I got in because of DeFi. So like I saw everything happen on ETH. So to me, ETH is like my king of the jungle. And like, you know, I, I still hold Bitcoin uh, because I, I do see it's the narrative for owning that uh, independent of ETH. But like for me, it's it's ETH. 
And, and the same thing close. is applying with each of these. Uh, all <laughs> that's why the avalanche community is being labeled uh, a little aggressive, nut job uh, level. <laughs> it's the same thing. Am they want to uh, win. They want to be the king. Yes. Am I, am I the most pro Bitcoin person here? I would. I, say, I would also actually. put myself up there, but you're probably even even more. But I think I actually hold a I higher could. percentage of my portfolio. All right, in, never mind. I think, most, I think I have a boomer. I think I have a boomer portfolio of like, you know, Bitcoin, ETH, and then NFTs and ETH derivatives. You really yeah, have yeah. to ask yourself, guys: Are you going to make it? Are you going to make it holding on that Bitcoin? <laughs> I mean, if my actions had to speak louder than words, like my actions show, I have more ETH now. So, yeah, oh, well, I, I think it, I think it's a very interesting discussion to have that we should. Well, by the way, only talk because about someday in a different episode. NFTs. The NFTs are responsible for this, which I throw in that that bucket. You, so you know, like NFTs are an interesting thing to tie into our our ETH bull case because I don't know, like what, what we've been talking about is a is a platform for smart contracts, a layer for smart contracts to happen where applications will be built on DeFi as one, NFTs are one, but NFTs have this like cultural significance. I think, which is important, um, you know, because they, they weave in art, they will eventually weave in music um, and how people choose to, to show off their identity. Um, and there will be its own applications, but, but having ETH as the money for culture or a cultural asset is, is also somewhat important. You know, ETH is the currency of NFTs. And so I think there's, you know, I don't know what value you assign to that, but there is this kind of extra uh, value that I think it it deserves for being the currency of NFTs and 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 maybe broader and in the future just you know culture in general. Yeah, you you reminded me of a good point that I think is worth considering because we, we were talking about Bitcoin versus Ethereum, and I I think a lot of Bitcoiners will will say and and probably rightfully so, in my opinion, that like Bitcoin is truly money and and ETH is not. And they'll also say other things like, well, there's no need for decentralization for NFTs. There's no need for like DeFi isn't truly decentralized. All these things. And I think on some level, they're, they're absolutely correct, right? But like the market has also clearly spoken. Like people clearly do want NFTs. People clearly do want to play around with all this stuff. And Bitcoin doesn't serve it currently. So as much as you want to be on your little, you know, Bitcoin high horse, right? And holier than thou, and this is the way it should be. Like Ethereum is sort of just a bet on the way the world is and how humans are and how they actually are behaving. And if humans behave in this way and continue to want to do these things, well, they're going to use, they're going to, they're going to trade NFTs. They're going to play games, right? In in the metaverse or do other Mm -hmm metaverse things, however you define it, whether or not that's legitimate and Web3 is a real thing, it almost doesn't even matter because people are doing it. They're going to do it. It's going to drive demand for ETH and the price is going to go up. So for a lot of people, it's like, do you want to make money or do you want to be like overly ideological to to like a fall, right? And I'm not even saying what the Bitcoiners say is, is totally wrong, but like I, I I want to make money, and I I think that these things clearly are happening and will continue to happen. You know, I got a question about that. So you, when you brought up that point, you made me think of Michael Saylor, right? Michael Saylor is the CEO of MicroStrategy. They they became popular because it was the first public company to announce they they moved their treasury, the the cash that they hold in the bank account, into Bitcoin, and I think that's their 
main treasury asset now is they hold Bitcoin. They view it safer than than the U.S. dollar. And his one of his arguments when people ask him, well, why aren't you also buying ETH? And I think his point is simply that as a CEO of a publicly traded company, it's the only one he feels that he can legally and safely buy as a publicly traded company. So do we think that will, um, I guess, hold up our thesis a little bit? until there's some more regulatory clarity of if a public company or an institution can actually hold it? Or is that only the the case you make for, um, you know, a, a store of value play? You know, maybe the public companies only want to hold a store of value asset and Bitcoin fits that better, but they will find ways to own ETH as the global, global settlement layer for, um, you know, Web3 or what we often refer to as Web3. I mean, I think there absolutely are like enormous risks still with Ethereum. I think Ethereum has the least regulatory risk of all the other coins because I, I, I believe the SEC has said in the past that ETH and Bitcoin are both not securities, but I don't think any other coin can really even like truthfully make that claim with a straight face, right? And there there are like other like enormous risks with with eth that we don't know about right there's all these black swans lurking in DeFi with stable coins like there's a lot of stuff that could happen that could trigger like an, an unbelievable implosion at some point like we have to approach that with open eyes i mean it's one of the reasons i still hold a lot of bitcoin is because bitcoin is is much more certain there's there's a way fewer unanswered questions right it also means the the upside is less right you're taking on a lot more speculative risk, right? You get paid to take on that risk with ETH, but like you, you would be a fool to like ignore that. And I think people who are just buying these coins, you know, should educate themselves on like all the little monsters that are lurking underneath, both from like a regulatory perspective and in just like the sort of structural ways that these ecosystems are currently being built with like hidden leverage and, and smart contract risk and all these things that can kind of unwind in like a nasty way. And that's not to say that we won't ever recover from it. I, I think we still will because like, it's just too great of a, a thing to, to, to just go away. And there's clearly too much of a product market fit, but yeah, like you, you could, you could absolutely get wrecked. And I totally get a guy like sailor with like a big company, not wanting to put billions of dollars in, in ETH right now and going into a coma for 20 years. It, it makes well, yeah, sense. I think it's, his his thing is more as a regulatory risk than like the risk of price going down, but there is you know just like there is a a, a Bitcoin trust um, GBTC a publicly traded security which you can invest in um, without going into it too too much. It's essentially a trust that actually holds real Bitcoin, and you're you're buying shares in that trust, and they tend to trade at premiums or discounts to the actual value in that of that Bitcoin that that trust holds. But there isn't an Ethereum equivalent. The ticker symbol is ETHE. And it's a grayscale Ethereum trust. And I was looking up while, while Stephen was talking, looking up the top holders, and it is ARK Investment Management, which uh, just so happened to put out a research report, I think, last week that reiterated similar price targets. They put ETH at a $180,000 price target by 2030 and Bitcoin of a million dollar price target by 2030. So, you know, uh, I guess maybe answer the question, but there is a way for some of these public institutions to play it, even though it's not directly in the asset itself. Um, there is ways for them to hold some ETH in their, 
You didn't see uh, Scope Wealth Management on that list? As, uh, uh, let e- me see. ETH yeah. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. for our track, I can't scroll clients, far enough. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm allocating. <laughs> uh, I had a question actually, uh, which is related to all this. So, um, really, like, you know, Bitcoin is probably the best store of value ever created. Okay. Like, I think we could probably all agree on that. Um, but then there's this like meme about, Ethereum or ETH, Ether being a triple point asset where it's like mm-hmm. this capital asset that um, generates cash flow based off transactions, like, you know, a hundred times more than Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's 1% of the, of like the transaction dollar amount of ETH. And then it's going to have this yield coming up uh, after the merge. So it's, it's clearly like a capital asset. And I think it's probably more of a security than not going forward. But it can also be a store of value with its like deflationary monetary policy. And, you know, Bitcoin trades like the value of Bitcoin or the price of Bitcoin is, is entirely based on this like monetary premium that is ascribed to, to its store of value properties, similar to the way that gold is. You know, like gold is a, a $10 trillion asset with like uh, maybe $1 trillion worth of like industrial use case. So it's like it's monetary premium is like a 10 X multiple on gold. Bitcoins is, is higher. You know, it doesn't really have an industrial use case as purely store value, but like does ETH should ETH get any monetary premium? And if it does, um, how do you incorporate that into an ETH valuation similar to the way that like squish was looking at the price of it, of ETH, like, could you, would you aggregate these things to be like, Oh, so the capital asset value of ETH would be X. And then the store of value monetary premium of ETH would be Y you add those together. And then there's like this utility value, which is like, it, it's like this, this fuel to buy NFTs and transact in DeFi, which was like the third point of, of the triple point asset. But like, that's my question is, is really about like the monetary premium store of value comparing to Bitcoin and like, would ETH get ascribed any of this monetary premium that we are ascribing to things like gold and Bitcoin? And for something that is like has a, a pretty strong, you know, like monetary policy as well. I, I'm just trying to like, you know, picture the CNBC like clip in the future for that to be true. And it's basically like Joe Kiernan on uh, CNBC asking Michael Saylor, I mean, like, well, sure, Bitcoin only has 21 million. Uh, Bitcoins, but Ethereum is deflationary. It decreases in supply, and I think once that narrative happens, maybe it will get a, a you know a, a monetary premium like that. But I think once we see that question, maybe the hooks will be in for for the narrative and for the the larger investment class to to <sighs> appreciate that maybe. But you know, one reason that Bitcoin has that is because that's its only game in town. It's it's kind of a one trick pony, and it's a really good one trick pony. But I think while ETH has this yield and this ec- economic activity and application use case, I don't know if if that will be its claim to fame and if it'll actually play out. Just because. Okay, Stephen, so I know you want to jump in on that one, but I, I do want to do a follow up, and and that's like, does it matter if ETH is a security versus a commodity? You know, like it, let's say let's say that Bitcoin is a pure commodity that's just like gold or whatever and ETH gets deemed a security, like, does that actually affect the fundamentals and affect the value of ETH uh, in the way that people use it? I mean, I don't think ETH will get 
declared the security. I could be wrong on that. Um, I don't think it, I also don't necessarily think it would be like a, a death knell for it either, even if it happened in some weird scenario. Like it's already just so widely adopted and, and, and used and basically like impossible to really shut down, right? Like if you wanted to shut down Solana, like wouldn't it be that hard to like track down Anatolia and like a couple of validators and just <laughs> be like, stop. Right, but you, you can't shut down ETH. It's like the the the, the cat's out of the bag there. Um, like you could even make our. I mean, I know like people try to make arguments that regulation is good in some circumstances, and it probably is in, in a lot of circumstances. If you're if you want to make number go up, um, although there is like a healthy debate about the degree to which people are sort of like selling their souls down the road to make number go up in the in the short run. Like if we let these these uh these things if we let bitcoin and ethereum kind of like be you know corrupted by by the uh, you know the claws of government and these the like banks and whatever other existing kind of like corrupt institutions we have uh, but it's it's honestly not something i really worry about a lot with eth the bigger threat is stuff on eth being classified as securities right and then the ripple effects on eth itself the the threat of stablecoin regulation or you know if, if that's especially if that's done poorly like those to me are like the the large regulatory threats with eth if that makes sense i i think in the, in the in the case where you're talking about um if we're speaking about monetary premium like as a store of value for public companies to hold it in their treasury it has to clearly not be a security for that one use case that we're talking about in, or case in the bull case for ethereum uh, you know, Apple can't hold it in its, in its treasury, you know, so m- until that's clarified, you know, I don't think you'll see any public companies or, um, you know, hold it in their treasury, but, um, to invest in ETH, the platform and to, to be a participant in the network, to build applications on it for sovereign wealth funds, to hold it for private funds, to hold it for large, you know, high net worth individuals to hold it. I don't think that that matters at all, but in that slim case of, of, you know, public companies holding it, you obviously can't have it be a security, you know, um, I think as part of their main treasury asset, like fiat dollars, Bitcoin and Ethereum, it would have to be labeled pretty clear. Um, doesn't mean they couldn't invest in it. Like Apple has, you know, uh, on their balance sheet, a line item marketable assets, and they invest in stocks and other things. And and that could certainly be part of that part of the balance sheet, but maybe not part of like cash uh, and stuff like that, I think. So I think we're still okay. And I think Stephen's point of this, this, the applications and in, in coins on Ethereum is, is maybe the bigger risk to the narrative. You know, if, if we look at, DeFi, if DeFi gets regulated a little bit and the coins and applications on there get a little slapped down in the short term because of, of regulation, uh, then maybe that is a narrative against Ethereum that we could face, a headwind that we could face in the in the um in the short term. But you know, another narrative that could be a tailwind, I think we mentioned it briefly at the top, was the whole um climate change narrative. You know, as soon as uh ETH moves to proof of stake, there won't be these machines consuming electricity. And part of Squish Chaos's bull case is that that narrative will move 
um, a lot of of investment and money towards ETH because uh, it no longer has like the, the climate change issues that say Bitcoin faces, even though most of the Bitcoin miners are, are kind of transitioning to sustainable energy. Um, and, and we've talked about the, the case of Bitcoin actually incentivizing sustainable energy um, uh, at, you know, in, in previous podcasts. So that's another narrative I think we haven't touched on, but you know, should probably deserve a second mention um, in terms of narratives coming up once the merge happens. So I think we should try to summarize this. Stephen, do you want to take cool. a, a shot at it? Yeah, I could do a quick wrap up here. So, so why ETH? Like, why should you care? Like, especially if you're somebody who's new to the space. Um, there's undeniably demand in the market to do things with blockchains that Bitcoin in its current state doesn't do, right? Namely, a lot of the smart contract applications that enable stuff like DeFi, NFTs, so on and so forth. So it's it's clear to me that we need an alternative to Bitcoin, right? Not necessarily a replacement for it, but a, a complement to it, right? So a lot of coins exist that are trying to fill that void, right? It's basically Bitcoin on an island and a lot of coins that try to do non-Bitcoin stuff. But in that sea of like a ton of coins, there is only one coin that does what ETH does, right? So ETH can kind of do all these other use cases, right? But it also has these incredible tokenomics, right? Which in the future, especially by design, are going to cause the number to go up. And you might say like, well, why can't Solana just implement the same tokenomics? Why can't Avalanche do the same tokenomics? And that's a good question. But the reason is because like ETH has inherent demand to use the network that none of these other protocols have, right? Like people are willing to pay hundreds of dollars to do transactions on ETH. They're only willing to pay like fractions of penny to do, pennies to do stuff on Solana. So none of these other protocols can implement all of the stuff that ETH is implementing and get the same result, right? To top this off, like ETH, as we talked about, is rolling out layer two this year, which is going to basically enable millions of people to use ETH and to do so with the same cheap, fast transactions that they're getting on all of these other quote unquote ETH killers, right? So when you put all of this together, it's very difficult to see how anything is going to compete with ETH in the long run. It's the, the reason why I tell everybody who's getting into the space to, to buy Bitcoin, to buy ETH, and then take a deep breath and go do some research and, and learn some stuff. And until you can kind of like, you know, talk about why you own those two things and why other things have to be better and in which ways, then you, you know, you don't have a lot of business buy, buying anything else as, a, as an investment, right? If you want to gamble with a little bit, you know, knock yourself out. But that's kind of like my brief synopsis on the the why ETH bull take. What um, about a crypto dick butt NFT? Should they put that a part of their initial portfolio as well? <laughs> I, 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 th- I think so. Well. Crypto dick butts are truly, truly breathtaking pieces of art. <laughs> yeah, grill. <laughs> <laughs> who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want one? Little, especially a little spidey dick butt on there. At least get an MFR. An MFR. Oh, yeah. don't show the MFRs yet. I haven't bought any. Uh, <laughs> shout out! Shout out to us, by the way, because we we uh, pitched uh, cool pets on our last episode, and they're up fifty percent since uh, since we dropped that. <laughs> Sorry, as job, Stephen went super responsible, so I felt this like urge to throw some super DJ <laughs> comment in there. But I, I we didn't appreciate Stephen's wrap up there. But that, I think that was a uh, beautifully summarized uh, and uh, 
we'll probably be back more with uh, ETH Denver. But yeah, uh, we did call Cool Pets, which is an NFT project that launched. It's got some uh, play to earn game mechanics that will hopefully drive it higher. What's what's the appreciation on it since the last time we mentioned it? Uh, what was the Eric? price when we? I think we shielded it at one point two ETH, and now it's at two. Really, it's like two point five. Five. Yeah, it yeah, was as high nice. as two point nine today or yesterday. We're dropping wow. off alpha left and right. Wow. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was a great. That was a great little summary, Stephen. Um, it's perfect. Thank you, Stephen. Yep. Yes. I think we'll wrap there. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Much love. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want more of. And uh, hopefully we see some of you guys in East Denver. Until next week. See you out there. Peace. All right, you little DGens, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed. Head to alfalfapod.com for all of our links and socials. And if you want some real alpha, head to collectiveshift.io and join thousands of members getting the latest insights and alerts from a team of expert research analysts all there to help you create more wealth and freedom through crypto. And don't forget to use our discount code alfalfa for 50% off your first month. Until next time, see you then. Peace.